tragedy we've got going on in our world today. It's just, it can really, beca- it can really get you down until Carrie gives you a pep talk. <laughs> and then you feel better about it. <laughs> just remember, God's got a plan in all of this. And we are heading to the end. And sadly, we've got an awful lot of people who live in darkness and they have been deceived by the evil one. And their mission in life is absolutely in contrary to what God's mission is. God, uh, in, in some ways, the, um, the idea that, that their, their faith system is a, is a faith of death, ours is a faith of life. And what, a, what an amazing contrast that is. And this week we kind of looked um, a little bit at, at a contrast in the same like manner, comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. Not that the old covenant ever required anyone to take a human life, but the extremity of Islam taking life and thinking that that is something that's God honoring and that ushers them into the presence of the, uh, the God that they call their God it, and who is no God at all, by the way. It's, it's very, very sad. So we do pray for those people. We pray for, you know, just eyes to be open, people to come to salvation, and that God would just snatch them out of the clutches of Satan because it's a horrible thing that we see going on. All right. Um, okay, so what we want to do today is take a look at the old covenant of the law and make some very brief uh references in contrast to what we see going on in the new covenant of the law and why why do you think that's an important thing for us to do at this point why have we come along to the to this place here and now approach chapter eight what do you think is the reasoning kind of in the way this author is unfolding this message yes okay yeah, well, he may, he brought it up that it's. But why do you think he did bring it up? What has he been taught? What has been the major subject at this point? That Jesus is what? That he is our high priest. Now, what was the problem when he hit chapter five? That he realized five and six, where he had to elaborate on a few points that were a problem concerning these people. Why did he have to make that stop and, and begin to explain to them these things? There you go. According to their law, he didn't qualify to, to even hold that position, right? Because he was of the wrong lineage and, and the wrong tribe of uh, Israel. So given that, I'm going to go back real quickly. And, you know, we, we looked at that um, uh, contextual setting more times now than, than often we feel like we wanted to probably. But one of the points I want to take us back to begins in chapter 3, verse 1, where the exhortation is given to us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. And it's very interesting to me how he makes this statement in chapter 3. He has back in chapter 1 when he opened, he said to us that God had spoken to them through the prophets and the laws previously, but now he speaks to us through his son. That's where he begins this whole message in chapter 1. 
Um, and then in chapter 2, he says, and because he's now speaking us through the Son, who, by the way, is God, who is the one who created the world, right? Who is the one who is greater than and better than the angels and, and greater than man because he gives help to man. But he says, we must pay much closer attention, right, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So what does that imply to us about what might be potentially going on for these people? Some of them were drifting away. Um, and it's very interesting when you consider the, I the idea of a drift. What does it mean to drift? Yeah, you're just, it's a subtlety, isn't it? Go ahead, Lois. Going with the flow, <laughs> yeah, and it, I do think it's, uh, you know, for me, I think about, especially when I was a young kid, this is in the days when I used to actually enjoy the sun and the water, um, I would lay on a, a floaty, you know, on the, on the water and just lay there, and then you'd just kind of drift, you know, uh, and it wasn't something that you consciously did, you just did, all of a sudden, you'd wake up and you'd look around, you'd go, where am I, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're, you floated down the river somewhere. Well, this is the idea of the drifting away from it. Um, the warning. Do you remember what the warning was? He talked about if there was a, a discipline that was imposed for those who broke the old covenant, the old law, the old word, which came through the prophets and the law, then what? How much more severe do you think there should be? right? He's not saying that there is, but he's saying that how much greater should there be because of the contrast to the, to the value and, the, and the, the more exalted kind of, of word that we have now coming through this, which is new, this new covenant. So Jesus had, um, in chapter to the end of it, he says that Jesus had made propitiation for the people, and he did so to give aid to people. That was in chapter 2 where he was talking about Jesus is, is actually greater than man. He is the creator of man. He's creator of the earth. But he's greater than all that. However, although greater, he also took on the likeness of man. And he did so for the purpose of giving man aid. So then he opens chapter 3 with this statement. Consider, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. So this is the first mention of the priest. Um, uh, subject, and from that point all the way until now, it gets dropped in subtly and intensifies in its, in its information for us as we move along. He starts with just this very subtle uh, statement in 3.1. He, he makes a little bit of a, of a pause in here too because he, he in chapter 3, what we do see is is a warning, a f the very first warning in here, and that is a warning about people actually needing to be so alert to the fact that the, the word that we have now through Jesus, through the Son, being so much better and so much more of more um, uh, excellency compared to what came through the prophets and the law. And then he says, um, you need to fear least any one of you may come short of it. So he does make a mention of people, the potential of in that congregational address as he's making this address to the congregation of believers that there may be some among them who may not have actually even entered in. Now, why is he 
making this statement? What, what seems to be the thing that is triggering his concern? Do you remember in chapter 3 what was the deal? Why was he thinking that maybe they hadn't, some of them hadn't entered in? They were not holding fast. They were not enduring in it, right? So does this mean then that your salvation is attained by enduring or by holding fast? What, does it, what is being said here then? There you go. The evidence of a person who is saved is the enduring. Now, this week in our homework, did we see anywhere in our references, either in chapter 8 or in the things that you went back to, anything that indicated to us that God made a promise to us that in this new covenant, there would be an ability to endure? Do you guys remember? Okay, and what does he say that gives you an indication that what he's saying here about, well, I'm kind of wondering about some of you because I'm, not, I'm seeing that you're drifting, and those who are drifting makes me concerned because I know that in this new covenant that God has promised, there has been a, an assurance that God will hold us. And so for, as people begin to drift, it makes him concerned, right? Now, it doesn't always mean that every person that drifts is not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he is saying as a pastor over this church, as, as a person who is, has a concern for the, the quality of their faith walk, that he is looking at their life and he's seeing them drifting and he's saying, you know, maybe you better examine yourself, Right? What is there something that God is God said he's going to write his laws on their heart. Right. Um it's another another reference that you're gonna have to write a heart of stone write it in your heart. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel thirty six says and that. Mm -hmm. They will be his people and he will be their God. He will be their God and they will be his people. And he says, I will place my spirit within you and then do what? Thank you. You guys have learned that one very well. I think you've heard it a few times, right? <laughs> if I say it enough, we all learn it, right? And God will cause us. I never fully, I don't think, uh, digested that until I started looking at it again this week in the context of what's going on in Hebrews, where Hebrews is saying those who hold fast, right, are God's house. Those who hold fast have become partakers of Christ. And so the evidence of, of a person who's truly come into faith, are the, he's saying, are those who visibly you see them holding fast, not drifting away, okay? So that's just a, a, a really good rule of thumb, I think, for all of us to keep in mind as we try to evaluate how we might help and exhort and encourage one another to hold fast and not drift, right? We can, we can all be guilty of, on occasion, wanting to drift, right? Getting tired, feeling the, the, the heaviness and the burden, I think, um, even of just constancy on occasion. So we need the encouragement. Does God even say that in his word, that we need to be exhorting and encouraging one another? So it's not like he's saying that just because I gave you your spirit, you will always be absolutely on fire for God and absolutely standing and not drifting. But what he's saying is, he says, however, I have given in this, this thing, this new covenant, this new way of approaching, I have given you a couple of things that are different 
from the old. So this week, that's what we're looking at, is to really make a deliberate comparison to see. Now, with this particular audience that he's writing to, this is important because these are people who I think have been holding on yet to a lot of what's been going on in the old. They hadn't fully divorced themselves. Now, why not? What, what did he say was the problem in chapter 5? Why had they not fully walked away from that old system? They had not matured. Now, if that does not encourage you and I in what we are doing here, I don't know what else would. Because knowing that, that God himself has says right here in this passage through this author's writing, it is the knowledge of the word of truth which, which gives you the disciplines and it gives you the protection the spiritual protection that you know you need is given is attained through knowledge knowledge is that which anchors your feet so that you won't be tempted to drift away so that when uh, trials and temptations and the weariness of everyday walking in faith sometimes a uh, hits us, then you have the knowledge then that God will flood your mind with the knowledge, but you don't have knowledge if you haven't established it. If it's not been put in, right, re by the renewing of your mind, you are, your life is transformed and your heart is transformed. And you are, you are given this, this zeal and this, and it's not just a zeal that walks around aimlessly. It's a zeal that understands truth. And it's the truth then that is what is going to guide you to make the right choices in your life and to honor God. So with this particular author, he is now approaching this subject. He has been going along and showing them that, that, there's, uh, there, that in this new covenant, in this new um, way to God, that, that it is so much better, right? So the key words have been better and to uh, the word excelling, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other words, but he, it, it is a better, the subject is basically Jesus is a better way, right? A better way to do what? I'm just saying in general, all the messages about Jesus being better, what is he better than? Better than the old? Better in the, the old. And in the, in the covenant, what is the purpose to the covenant? What was the purpose to the law? There you go. A better way to approach God. It, for the Jew, they understood that their only way to approach God was through whom? Their priest. And through the system of the, the law that they had. So consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession back in chapter 3 begins the journey of this author showing them that Jesus is the one who is the high priest for them now. He, it is through him that they approach the, the throne of grace, not through the, all these other things that they had through their system and certainly not through their old inferior uh, priests that they, that they had always come to God through. All right, so they were rebuked for being too long infants in faith. They had also, some had been warned about n possibly still needing to enter 
into the rest of God, which I think for some people, because that's mentioned back in three, they come forward into uh, five and six and make the application that maybe some of these are not believers. I can understand how they could make that mistake, but um, it becomes very clear when you do your inductive work on those passages and apply all of your inductive skill processes that chapter five and chapter six are believers. They have been established in faith. They are remained babies, and they need to mature. And so he is pressing them into maturity, right? So he says, consider Jesus the apostle of your, uh, uh, of your confession. Hold fast to him, right? Do not fall away. Do not drift away. Because faith, because faith is found through faithfulness. It's observed in you. It's evidenced in you through your faithfulness. Um, and then he says to them, press then, press into maturity. Let's put that on the board. All right. Those are our first two points. Consider Jesus the apostle and press into maturity. So now what we are going to do is we're going to look at how God uh, uh, is uh, through the writing of this author, how he is addressing their understanding of the better way to approach God through this new way, through this new high priest that they're going to be um, encouraged through. So you guys did a couple of things. The very first thing we did was look at the, at the subject of covenant. What were some key words that you saw in chapter 8, by the way? Because what was one of the first things you needed to do was make sure you finished your observations in 8. Right? What did you see in chapter 8 for keywords, for instance? Let's just throw those out so everybody hears them. But yeah, covenant, okay? Was there a synonymous word for covenant also in there? Another one? The word or promises. The word of promise, absolutely. Good. The law. And the law could be combined with a couple of other things too when it speaks of the law it's also referred to as what the the commandments okay good excellent um okay well the high priest is another key word okay yes high priest the priesthood was another key word in there there's a, syn a synonymous term used in here for for the priesthood as well, right? It's called, the work that they do is called what? Ministry, or a minister of these things, right? So you could mark the word high priest and minister of it, uh, or a more, like for instance in verse 6, but now he, meaning who? Jesus. Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, speaking of his priesthood. So you could mark that as the word high priest there, all right? Yes, thank you. That was what I was wanting to take us to. So what there, uh, there's a couple of things that become contrast for us then. Old covenant and new covenant. Any other contrasts that you noted? Oh. Oh, that's okay. Gifts and sacrifices. But okay. Mm-hmm. And, and better, and then the contrast is better to, than what? Than the old way, right? This, the, this, right. 
Very good. Excellent. The, the true tabernacle and the shadow or the copy of it. Um, there was, oh, and even location. One being where? On earth and the other being in heaven. Okay. Right. God will. Oh, I love it. Okay, so now let's boil that down a little bit more. Even, It's a little bit more analytical. I want to take us to more analytical observation. One is a blessing, a cursing, which, which, result, which basically boils down to you're going to be obedient, correct? So it's a, it's a covenant of obedience and, and the law contrasting with the I will, meaning God says I will do this and I will and I will and I will. So what do we call that? Mercy or grace. Okay, so it's law versus grace. Isn't that awesome? Yes, yes. Hi, Carol. Well, the grace is in the new. The grace is in the new, but it's the grace that saves Right. Okay, so Carol, now you bring up another, another point which we didn't even touch on this week in homework. I so desperately wished we had because to me, so often when you're talking about the covenants of God, people don't make it really clear that there, is, there, there has always been a covenant of grace for the people of God. Israel was established through who? What man? Before that? Abraham. God promised Abraham a land, a seed, and a nation. And who was the seed? Christ. It was going to be Christ, right? In Galatians chapter 3, we see interpretation on that, right? Our commentary in the new is Galatians chapter 3. So in that particular covenant then, when, when Abraham believed God, what was the result? You guys are so good. It was credited to him as righteousness, which is, i.e. means what? salvation so he was given salvation when he believed God concerning the promises and so and when he was credited as righteous in the old covenant of the Abrahamic covenant that's a covenant of grace because God did it God offered it God it was God's word all Abraham did was believe God and God then credited him with righteousness so the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace and it was a covenant which began the process of one day God fulfilling the coming of that seed, and that seed is Christ. So that takes us to which secondary covenant? Who is Christ? Which covenant is Christ the mediator of? The new covenant. In between is another covenant, and it's called the law. Is it a covenant of grace? No, it's a covenant of works. So it's a good point to bring up. So in between is the law. The law, according to what we learned this last couple of weeks, what did, did the law ever give an effect that was beneficial? No. As a matter of fact, what does he say in chapter 7 and 8 of, of Hebrews concerning the law? 
Okay. Right, and actually he says, in, go back to chapter 7, verse 18 with me real quick. He speaks about that former commandment, meaning the law. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, because why? Of it was weak and useless. It really accomplished nothing pertaining to what subject? salvation and the right righteousness for the one who obeyed it it never fully it never fully accomplished now it may have made some temporary coverings what was the purpose of the law because we didn't look at that this week either but what is, was the purpose for the law yes that's right it it exposed man to understand the holy standards of god what, what, was, what was righteously required by God to attain relationship with God, right? So it showed man how desperately wicked we really are. We looked at a passage, it wasn't in seven, Jeremiah 17, where it says about the heart, the heart of man is what? Wicked. Desperately wicked. And so that's what the law really did for us. And as Craig brought up, which is that the law then became for us what? tutor to lead us to Christ what was the tutoring qualities of the of the law how did it tutor us okay it showed us that it couldn't okay there you go it revealed that a a sacrifice was necessary when Jesus arrived on the on the shores and John the Baptist saw him approach him what did he say about Jesus when he saw him Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He saw the, the, the reality of the old shadow and the tutor revealed to him by the, by the uh, power of God revealing it to him, by God giving him this knowledge and understanding. It was a supernatural moment when he made this confession. It's very much like Peter. When Peter made this confession and Jesus says, who, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter says, thou art the Christ. And then he says of, of that moment, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, man did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This was a spiritual moment when God revealed this through the Spirit in him, giving him an understanding. Same thing happened with John the Baptist. It doesn't give you all that in the storyline. But he looked up, he saw the the Christ approaching and he said behold the lamb of god he made the connection the tutor had been effective and in the rest of the qualities of the tabernacle all of them have something in it that teaches about the idea of approaching god how to approach god why we must approach god what was going to be the acceptable uh, sacrifice what was going to be the acceptable propitiation which was his blood so all these things were a tutor then that led us to Christ okay so in that um, understanding then that this there's this contrast going on that there's a new and better way to approach this this particular lesson then was all about us going back then and saying, let's take a good hard look at where they did come from. What did they, they experience as a nation previous to, for, th for a thousand plus years, for over 2,000 years. I'm not sure how long it was now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, Abraham, it would have been Moses. Oh, probably 
Yeah, probably 2,000 years or so, right? Of, of practicing. I should have looked that one up before I thought about it. Um, <laughs> out of my mouth sometimes I think before I, I speak before I think. Okay, so we're going to go back and look then carefully at what we saw this week in the law that I think impresses upon you um, once you take a look at it how much better it is to be under this new. And this author is really uh, uh, making that clear to them. The first thing we want to do is we want to look at the word covenant itself so that we first of all identify what that means. So you were told to look up in Hebrews 8.8 8, the word covenant. And that's a New Testament word of it. And what was your definition there? It's number 1242 in your Strong's, correct? And what is the, the transliteration? Dia, T-H-E-K-E, and I don't know how to pronounce that, but we'll, we'll just leave it as that. I always say diatheki, and I know that's totally wrong, but that's how I read it phonetically. <laughs> okay, now tell me, what is a, what is a covenant by definition. Testament or will. Now, I found that very interesting. I remember the first time I studied covenant, and I found that by definition, the word covenant meant testament. So when you read your, your Bible and you have an Old Testament and a New Testament, by definition, you're speaking of what? An Old Covenant and a New Covenant, right? Very interesting. All right. A last disposition, a testament, a will. Any other insights on that? Okay. A Wow, that's a long one. So it's, I'm just going to shorten it to it being a set agreement. And that is exactly right. It's a set agreement. It's been made between two parties. By the way, generally in any contract like this, any kind of a covenant, there generally tends to be one who is the superior or the lead to that contract, right? One who seems to have a, a, a carry the heavier weight of authority in it, and, and then there's a secondary one. So um, contract, yes. Did you hear, do you want to say it again? Contract. Okay, a contract. That's right. Okay, now in the Old Testament, we looked up Jeremiah, that was Hebrews 8.8, 8. now we looked up Jeremiah 31.31, and we looked up that same word, so it's an Old Testament use of that word, and it was number 1285, and it was by wreath. B-A-R-I-Y-T-H. And in that particular Old Testament, what did they uh, give for definitions for you? Uh, a covenant. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. At least we know we're on the right, right track when it came to our, our translation into the English, right? Alliance. Alliance. I liked that one. Alliance and pledge. Uh huh. 
Okay. Okay. And very interesting that when we went in and we looked at this, uh, when we looked in, um, um, was it Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and, we, and what were the other ones? In Exodus also, correct? When we looked at that, when God made covenant with Israel, who did do the dictating of that, those agreements? God did. It was God who set the standard. It was God who said this is what will, what will happen. So in that it was an agreement simply is that man agrees with God. Okay, and I think that's really an important quality to understanding the subject of covenant because in salvation, is that not also exactly what we are entering into? God is the one who says, this is the way it shall be. This is what the truth is about who I am. And I loved that passage that we got to see this week about where God conveyed to Moses who he was at a moment, particularly when Moses was a bit fearful because of, of their having broke their covenant and because of the wrath of God at that moment coming down upon them, all the, the cursings of the, that covenant that they had just entered into could fall upon their heads in a second. And so it, it's, God came back to him and says, this is who I am, Moses. So again, God is the one dictating what truth is, where the standard is, right? Okay, so in a... In a covenant then it is a disposition or a testament a will it, it is a set agreement and in this case there is a lead to the agreement and the leader sets the, the qualities or the standards of it he is the one that dictates w what that contract is going to be established on so it's who is in a, the case of a covenant with God who is the greater power in it God so who gets to make the standard God. <laughs> okay, so the covenant, allegiance, pledge. It is uh, the word vow also comes into play when you look at, at the, particularly the Old Testament one. Um, when we do a thorough study on the subject of covenant, we go in and we look at the vows that are made and how, the, and how they are held to it and how those vows then are actually sealed and confirmed as being the absolute once they are, um, what is the word, um, ratified, the ratifying of those, of those words or those things that are processed. Now, also in the old Jeremiah uh, uh, definition, there's the word to cut a covenant. Did anybody catch that one on their definition? That's another part of it. Thou is to cut a covenant. Now, why is that? Does anybody know enough to give us an explanation about the, the idea of cutting covenant? Okay. What And what do you know? Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm, that's correct. So, and that is another important quality to that particular uh, covenant because that was the covenant, again, that we said earlier, led to salvation for Abraham. God is the one that cut the covenant. Abraham did not. C now, Abraham cut the animals and laid them out, but who passed between the pieces? God did. Did Abraham walk between the pieces? No, God did. So in that particular covenant, it is a covenant of grace. It was a promise made by God, and the only requirement on Abraham's part was the belief part. And it isn't even a requirement. You either do or you don't. And in his case, he did. He believed God, and therefore God credited to him as righteousness. So it's a vow, and it's made by the cutting of flesh and, yes, Yes, yes. And so would you, that would be called a covenant at that time, because you promised them to see and be present at Yeah. I think so. I think it's absolutely the, f yes, because I think that co covenant cutting has been something that's been in place from the garden. From the very first time man um, sinned, there had to be shedding of blood as a temporary atonement. And now the, the law didn't come for generations and generations yet later, after the flood and, and Moses and all those years in captivity, after the Abrahamic covenant was first given. None of those were around. The law didn't come around for many, many generations. But up until then, there's a passage in Romans, and I don't remember where it is, but it says from Adam until the law, God passed over sin. How did he do that? by the blood that he shed. He made, he himself cut a, a covenant with man. He shed blood on their behalf. And then as a sign of that particular covenant, what did man do? He was clothed with the, sh with the animal skin of, that God had shed the blood through. So it was, it's all a pictorial thing, a precursor. And once you come into a really good understanding of covenant, you start putting all these pieces together and you recognize the qualities. You recognize the covenants when you see them, where until you study it, you, you really can miss a lot of those. It is like a puzzle, isn't it? God's word is a, is a bit of a mystery, and it's so much fun to dig it out. <laughs> Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. And that is that is the whole point. It's a pointing to that which God had intended from when in history, according to what we've seen in Hebrews. When did God make the plan for this kind of a thing? From before the foundation of the world. I love that. In he in Hebrews chapter four, that was one of the things he said. To, he says to us, "Let's look, go look at that real quick." In chapter four, uh, verse three, he says, "For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world." He already had a plan in place, and f and even with Adam and Eve, before they entered into the garden, before they were they were uh, life was breathed into their nostrils and they were placed into that garden before man ever sinned. God already knew that there was going to be a required need and he had it all planned out. I just love, I just love the way this all comes um, into a, a better focus as we study these particular points. This is called pressing into maturity, right? 
All right, so now we've got a pretty good definition. To cut a covenant uh, is another definition in Jeremiah 31. Alliance, agreement, pledge, covenant. It can also be marriage, by the way. Did anybody pick up on that one, that the word marriage was in there, that marriage is a covenant? Um, it's also, by the way, one of the reasons why in the New Testament we see this constant comparison of uh, our marriage, the church's marriage with Christ is represented through the marriage of a husband and wife. And how he says he hates, God hates divorce. Why? Because the marriage of a husband and wife was to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And God does not want us to destroy the picture, right? All right, now Hebrews 7 and 8. In What do we see in chapter 7 and 8 about uh, the old covenant? You all should have gone through and kind of made yourself some kind of a list. Hopefully you did concerning it. As it doesn't really come up until you hit about uh, the end of chapter 7 and then from 7, uh, starting around verse 18 and then all the way through 8, you're going to see points concerning the Old Covenant. Start in 718. I'll just help you out a little bit. It's weak and useless. And therefore, because of its weakness and its uselessness, what is God saying concerning here in verse 18? There, it's going to be set aside. There's a setting aside of that. Let me block that off and start with another spot. Okay. Um, we'll look at Hebrews 7 and 8 concerning covenant. Um, concerning the law. We're going to look we're looking at the subject of the law at this point. All right. There is a setting aside of it. And it's because of its uselessness and its weakness. Because, are you concluding that from the verse 718? Okay, tell me where, where you're looking. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, in, in, a, in some ways, Celeste, I'm helping you out here, dear. This, the fact that it says here in 718 that there's a setting aside of it, that it does, it, the implication there is that it was temporary, right? And for those of us who, who study covenant, we know that there are, one of the distinguishing markers between these various covenants is some of them are eternal and some of them are temporary, right? So we know under the Abrahamic covenant, how long was that one to be? Forever. Forever. It, was a, it was an eternal covenant because it was a covenant of salvation. It was a covenant of a promise of the coming seed, right? And that would, that would be one that would go on forever. But in the covenant of the law... We see here there's going to be a setting aside of it because of its weakness and its uselessness, and therefore you can say it is a temporary covenant. <laughs> I knew I could help you out. <laughs> I was reading your mind. You're brilliant. <laughs> we think... 
We think so much alike, Celeste. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And in verse 19 it, about the law, what does it say concerning it? How effective was it? It made nothing perfect. You know, I cannot tell you uh, how many people do not know this. Really. And it surprises me sometimes when I have conversations with people that they do not understand that the law never brought salvation and that the law was never intended to be an eternal thing, that the law was, was a shadow. It was, a, it was only a holding place. It was only a, really what the law did best for Israel was what? What was one of the most effectual things for Israel? to reveal to them the holiness of their God. And as far as, as a nation is concerned, what did it do for them? It, it gave them guidelines for living their life on the land so that they would uh, live as a light to the world, which is what God intended for them to do. So it gave them those parameters. We saw that this week when we did our homework. Okay, now in the old, what was the problem according in chapter 8? Flip over to chapter 8 now. And again, actually, Celeste, your answer to the temporariness is also seen in chapter 8, verse 7. He talks about the first having been, been found what? Faultless. Now, was the fault in the law itself? No. What was the fault in? The people who could not keep it, right? So he, let's go and make this particular point. In the old, in the old covenant... God found fault with the people. And this is better uh, stated, actually, when you go into verse 9. Go, somebody read, actually, somebody read all of it, 7, 8, and 9. To get, let's get that full picture there, where he's talking about how it's a weak, there's a weakness in the, the system of the law. Wow, there is, the, there is the crux of the weakness of the old. Not only is it uh, the weakness found in the people and the fact that the people could not keep it, but the consequential result then is uh, concerning God. What does God do in that old system? How does he respond to people who can't keep it? He doesn't like them. <laughs> it says, I, I, he says, um, I did not care for them, <laughs> right? And, the, and now that we've done our homework this week, we looked at the old, we looked in, um, let's see, let's go there real quick. Let's look at some of these old things where we see God not liking them very much, okay? Not caring for them much. He made warnings to them when he cut covenant. Go to Deuteronomy 29. Just open your Bibles. It might be easier for you than even on your sheets. I'm not sure. But uh, in the verse, the first uh, 
14 verses of Deuteronomy 29, he says, if you will obey me, I will bless you, right? And he gives all, he makes a, a long list of all these things that God is going to do for them if they will obey. But then he hits verse 15 and he says, but, right? Um, what does he say is going to happen if they do not? Give me some, some things where we see that God is not going to care for them very much. He's not going to care for them. Okay. Now, would you call that God not caring? In this case, I mean, by definition, God is saying he did not care. He's the one that said this. I didn't, right? God's saying I did not care for them. In what ways did he not care for them? Does it mean he didn't like them? No. No, it does not mean that. When he says he did, does not care for them because they broke it, he's saying he's not going to do what for them then? He he's not going to intervene and protect them. He's not going to continue to bless them. So what are the things that he warns them about when he does not care for them that they're going to have consequences about? What are some of those things? The land's going to be taken away. They're going to be removed off of their land, right? And? To bring them harm. Yes, okay. Yes. But in that, God saying, I will not care for you, depending on how we're interpreting that carefully. Yeah. When they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, their sandals didn't work. Right. Okay, so in this particular covenant, though, where he gave them a word about what he, what he was going to do for them, if they obeyed was the blessing, but if they disobeyed would be these various cursings. In the rendition that we see starting in... in a verse 14 there of, of Deuteronomy, we see from that point all the way, what is it, to 66 or something. I mean, it was a long, a long verse, right? Am I in the right one? Um, well, maybe not. This is in, no, this is in the wrong one. Where was the one that was so lengthy? Let me look here. I've got here. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what it means. I, di I did a word study on it, too. And what was interesting to me, because I thought about that, well, what does he mean? He does not care. Well, he tells them what he means when he makes the covenant. He says, I'll bless you if you obey, and if you don't, I will curse you. And when I don't care for you, it means I don't come to your aid. I don't come to your protection. I don't bless the land. I don't bless the womb. I don't bless the crops. I don't bring you rain. That's the caring that he's talking about. He doesn't mean he won't love them. He loves them. His lo he loves us so much, he's got a plan from before the foundation of the world to send his son, his only son, to die for us. That's beyond caring. That's love. That's the kind of love that we can't even truly, fully comprehend, right? We try to comprehend it on our human level, but that's, a, that's a, an unbelievable kind of love. That's a great sacrificial love. But when he says he did, would not care for them, he's saying he would not protect them, he would not take care of them, right? But now this is what's interesting. In this particular one, in the old covenant, God found fault with the people because they didn't keep it, right? But he says concerning um, in the new, go on and finish out that, that particular passage of reading. Someone read the next section, starting at 10 all the way to 12 of chapter 8. 
because we're going to look at the contrast between the old covenant and this, the new covenant as it's stated here in this passage. Who wants to read those for me? Okay, Carrie, go for it. Wow. Okay. Do you see the word for at the beginning of verse 12? That's a conclusion statement. For, for this reason or, or therefore kind of. It can be that kind of, a, of a interpretation. So for then, he concludes, he says to, the, to us in verses 10 and 11 what God is going to do in the new covenant. And then he tells us what the result will be. In, in that very last verse. And in the result of it, there's a difference. Here he said he found fault with the people and he would not care, he did not care for them. Meaning there would, ha there would be cursings, right? That's what the implication is there, right? He did not take care of them. That's, that, that would be a good way to put it. Let's, we can... He did not, I'll just add that in on top, he did not take care of them. And, and actually, I don't know about in your household, but in my household, somebody would take care of you if you disobeyed. <laughs> you, you would have the wrath of somebody. <laughs> A different kind of, I'm going to come up there and take care of you if you don't knock it off, right? <laughs> All right, so, but this idea of did not care for them, he's saying basically, I will I will impose the punishment or the discipline. I will withdraw my goodness and my blessing, and the consequence will be that you will suffer the consequences of disease and sickness and hunger and famine and enemies, and I won't be your protector. I will not be your God because you are not being my people, right? That's... That's exactly right. It, it was simply the promises, and the people are the one. By the way, how long did it take the people to break this covenant from what you looked at? Moses was on the mountain how long? Okay, they came, they made the covenant. He left, he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, receiving the written word of God on the stone tablets, right? Before Moses could get back down off the mountain, what had Aaron, the high priest, I know, what is wrong with Aaron? <laughs> okay, okay, I would love it if we had time to do a lot more research on this, but, but you do have to understand where these people had come from what they had just come out of. And it does help you to put it in better perspective once you see it. We can look at this now and read this and go, what was he thinking, right? But you got to remember, this is before the, the covenant, the new covenant had impl been implemented. He didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling on his heart yet, although the Spirit was coming and going. And I'm certain that he had the Spirit on occasion, if not pretty regularly. But at this point, we see where he falls very quickly into error, doesn't he? But he had just recanted all the words of that law to the people. And what did the people said? All that the Lord has said, we will do it. <laughs> Poor Moses. Moses is on the mountain. He's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And before he can get back down that mountain, God's already telling him, look, the people are down there. And they are already in trouble. <laughs> right? 
I found interesting is I, I, had, I also I heard it, uh, something in one of the messages these past few weeks where I've been listening that one of the pastors says that as Moses approached the camp, what was it that he did with those tablets? Does anybody have an, un, an understanding? I never noticed or never thought about. Why, why would he break those? Is, uh, was he just mad and he went, oh, you break it? They had broken it. Okay, so maybe it's somewhat symbolic that he was breaking it because they had broke it. Okay, maybe. But what else happened by him breaking it? What was in the contract? If you obey and if you disobey. So if you break the contract so that it's no longer in ratification, it's no longer in place, that would cease what? Those cursings. From coming, it was a temporary uh, stay, basically, until the people could be brought back on right relationship with God and rebuked. And there was some consequences, were there not? Yeah. What happened to some of those people when, when some of them died? Do you? Does anybody remember how many died? I found this was another point. There were three thousand. Do you remember what Aaron was told to do? Him and his priests to put on the sword, right? to go through the camp, right, and kill them. And it says in that day about 3,000 fell, right? Then at some point God, God uh, and Moses then have this conversation. And what does Moses do as the great man that he was? He intercedes on behalf of the people. And when he intercedes, what are the foundations of his defense? There you go. I love that. Wasn't that cool? He didn't say, oh, they didn't mean it, Lord. Oh, they, you know, they're just, you know, they, they made a mistake. It was a, it was a little mistake. No, it was a big mistake. But he didn't even do that. He goes directly to the heart of God's holy name in the eyes of the world. He says, the nations around will see what's going on here. And what will they say of you, Lord? Right? You just, you led them out just so that you could kill them. That's what they'll say. I just, I loved the fact that Moses approached him in that manner. Um, so Moses then, but basically he has broke these tablets. And if you have never thought of the fact of why did he break them, I had not. I had, I mean, I knew he did, and I always kind of thought, well, it's because they had broke it, so he broke it. Well, no, actually, I think this guy might have hit something on the, on the head. He broke the tablets so that, that, that it would put a temporary stay on the, on the, application of those cursings from God until he could go back in and remedy the situation between God and man. So again, he acted as the intercessor between God and man. He was that mediator between God and man at that point. That's a good point because if we'd have brought those tablets down their holes, then they would have been Totally, absolutely, and totally responsible for the consequences of every one of those. That's right. He would not. Absolutely. I thought that was a good point, and I had never had anybody say that before, but I thought it was a good one. And I thought, that's very interesting, because I always thought in anger he threw those tablets down. No, he did it out of love. He, 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 was a, he had a rational moment. It was a movie, yeah. That's right. 
was it Charlton Heston or whatever? <laughs> but the, but it, it was a rational moment on his point of understanding the consequences because they were in the process of breaking this this um, uh, covenant. And so he broke it in order to give them a temporary stay. Now, what did God then do later? He, he said, Moses, come back up here. We're going to redo this. And he gave him another copy of the law and rewrote it. So now it's reinstituted. It's re rekindled, basically. It's the same covenant. It's not a new covenant. It's the same covenant. But now, again, it's on stone tablets. And what happens with those stone tablets? One of them goes into the Ark of the Covenant. Well, his copy, the other copy goes to who? I, it's a movie. <laughs> always, what's really cool, and it never does tell us what, where the other copy goes, but always in, um, when a testament is done between two parties, do they not each get a copy? Yeah. yeah. One was for God, one was for the people. And so he took his copy of the tablets, put it within the Ark of the Covenant, and there it remained as their as their ratified copy of the testament that was made between God and Israel, the nation. Isn't that awesome? All right, now, okay, so in this new covenant then, when you get to the word for in verse 12, he gives you the reasoning behind this. In the first one, the old covenant, God found found fault with the people, and therefore he was not going to take care of them if they broke it, Right? But in the new covenant, how is it contrasted? I want to put a different color marker here for this. But in the new, this is so cool. In the new covenant, what was God going to do? Even if you broke in some of his laws, even if, you, even if you fail him on occasion, even if sometimes you don't walk in holiness before him, even if sometimes you don't love him and represent him well as you should. What does he say at the close of that and after that word for? Yes. And rem is that not a contrast from the old to the new? Did you ever pick up on that before? That that is the major contrast between the This is why this author is telling these people, this thing which we now have through the Son in contrast to that which came to us through the prophets and through the law of Moses, this is so much better. It is so much better contract. It is so much better covenant. Because in the old, God would find fault if you failed him. But in the new, this covenant is based on a, on a contract of mercy and forgiveness. Wow, that's awesome. In the new... Let's put this, God will be, it does not say he will not care for you. It says he will be merciful and remember your sins no more. Okay, hold on a second. Because there is going to be a couple of ways of, of handling this. Okay, that's in 812. Um, in 12 and then 13. This is why K then took us into the new covenant 
to make some observations. We've looked at the old a little bit, and we talked about it. So one, before I answer that, and don't let me forget it, but before I answer that, I want to go back and talk a little bit ab about some of these um, details for their living, because this is an amazing thought of what it was like under the old. You did um, Exodus 20, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, right? Did anybody go in and actually look at what was going on in those chapters in Exodus? In 19, God is calling Israel into covenant. When you, but then and in 20, do you remember what chapter 20 is all about? It should be right at the top of your Bibles. The Ten Commandments, right? Then you hit 21 and 22 and 23. And what do you see going on there? Lots of details for, for what? The, how they're going to live, their judicial system, how they're going to relate to one another. This is how, how they're going to care for their servants, about their female sla slaves, about capital offense and the death penalty, about physical injury, about culpable negligence, how to handle that. What about thievery? What about property damage? What about a safe deposit law? That's interesting, safe deposit laws. Did you know that? They didn't have banks in their system, but they had friends who sometimes would say, I will watch over your goods because I have a good fort here in my situation. So I will watch your property while you're away on this or that. And so they would get, bring their goods to one another and they would uh, be charged them. And there were laws for what they called safe deposit laws. Uh, they also had laws for borrowing. They had laws for sexual uh, uh, seduction for um, adulterous customs, what, how to not be participating in those, the care of the needy, uh, interest-free loaning laws. Cool, huh? Yeah. Uh, reverential laws on how to be reverential to the Lord and to those things which are holy. Impartial laws for being impartial in justice, how they dealt with one another, judicially with one another. Um, statutes for their Sabbath, which we know those came also in very big detail when we do Leviticus. But here's a, a section on uh, statutes for Sabbath and also about annual festivals. Promises for protection of God then are, are followed up at the very end of that. Then, be, then he goes into chapter 24 where we see all that institutional part, where we saw them take part in all these processes. What were the processes in that covenant making? What were some of the things that, do, that they ceremonially did? Okay, they, there was cleansing, okay? And what, okay? They made a, first thing Moses did was he made sacrifices, right, and burnt offerings to the Lord. And then, and then what did he do with the blood? He, first he divided it in half, did you notice? The first half of it was sprinkled on what? The altar, which was God's altar, right? Then, then what, he went back to the people and, and he picked up the law and what did he do? He read it back to them again, right? I, I bet he's getting tired of this job. And then, he, and then the, all the people again said, we will all that the Lord has said, we will do it, right? Right. I'm going, sure, I'm holding my breath. Okay. <laughs> and, then he, and then once the people said, yes, they would do it, then he took the other half of the blood and he sprinkled it where? It says on the people. Now, another point that I learned this week in, in one of these other lessons was, do you remember where it mentions the altar is built and then there are 12 pillars that are built? Yes. 
he says that probably the blood sprinkling on the people was on those pillars. The pillars symbolically represented the people. And so as he sprinkled it on the altar, then he turned and sprinkled it on all those 12 pillars representing the, the, the whole tribes of Israel. I thought that was an interesting point. Doesn't it? I know it. There was too many people there. How would they all get sprinkled? Well, symbolically, they all got sprinkled by those 12 pillars being sprinkled with the other half of the blood. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'm not. Fa- I know. Somebody explain a little bit more. It's, it's love God and love your yes, kids. yes. Absolutely. And, you, and then we have statutory law, which is man coming in and changing it. Right, absolutely. All the amendments that we make. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Well, you know, this is why I always am just scratching my head when people say, oh, America was not based on biblical principles or on the Bible or on Christianity. It's not a Christian nation. Well, it was founded as Christian with through Christian values and a Christian system and God's laws. That is what, I mean, where do you think we got? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit perjury. Thou shalt not, all came from right here. <laughs> anyway, okay, another story for another time. All right, so once God, once he sprinkled the blood then, then they concluded it by doing what? After they sprinkled the blood, the, the vows had all been made. Now what comes next? The eating of what? Eating of the covenant meal. Those animals which were shed, the blood was shed. Now those animals, what did not go on the burnt offering, uh, sacrifice for God, the that rest of that meat then went to those who were, had cut covenant. And they would eat of it. And have you ever been to a wedding? What do you do at a wedding after the wedding is done? You eat. You eat. Do you ever do you ever remember the wedding cake when the wedding cake is served? What is the picture in that? They cut the cake, they each share it, they lock arms and they each take a bite, and as they eat, then what happens between two? They become one. Two become one. It's it's a visualization again and it's the eating of a meal. And it's the same thing that happened here at you see, that you see in this particular covenant in uh, Exodus 24, where at the end of it, they went and they ate a meal. And so, some of it is very interesting, too. But uh, the one point that I thought was real significant in this uh, that makes the new covenant so much better than the old, who got to come near to God? Everybody? No. It, there was limitations and very strict laws concerning who could come near to God? Moses was allowed, the high priests were allowed, and those 70 elders were allowed. But what about the people? Not even the animals could touch the mountain. <laughs> they were kept at a distance. Isn't that an amazing difference? What do we have in our covenant with God? We can come boldly to the throne of grace. How often can we come? By appointment? Do we need to make an appointment? 
are there any limitations as to how, to, how often we can speak to God? As, are there any, any prerequisites before we come into the presence of God? Do we have to clean up and wash and bathe and perform certain... No, come as you are. <laughs> that, it, what, what a contrast. Well, absolutely. That's a good point, Carol. I mean, after all, he never leads us. He's an abiding presence with us. So our, our communing with God is an ongoing, eternal, constant. With the old covenant, the people were kept at a distance. Only certain qualified people, only, and only through God's very specific regulation system. There had to be an absolute precise keeping of how they approached a holy God. The point was in that precision and in those, those limitations and those laws was to show that he was holy and you are not. That there is a way to approach God if you are going to approach him. And in, in, in the end of it, with the new covenant, it shows us that we approach God through the blood. And in the case of our new covenant, what blood? Jesus' blood. Jesus blood. How often must he shed it? Once for all time. Now, let me just take you back real quickly. I want to do a flow of thought with you again, starting with consider Jesus the apostle of, of your confession and press into the maturity of that knowledge that he is your great high priest so much better than this old system. And that is what this author is trying to convince these people of. He had to make a stop when he hit, um, let me see if I've got it over here. Hold on, wrong page. When he told them to press into maturity, he basically he told them that you need to understand a couple of things. Okay, I'm adding this word understand. This is my little quote here. Understand, those who have entered God's rest have rested from their works. Now that we've done all the more work that we have done, what is he saying there? What works are, is, being, is the implication here? What were the works that they had come out of, that they were being told to come out of? those regulations of that old system of the law. He is comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. And he's saying those who have entered have rested from their works. You do not work now to approach God because the old covenant, yes, it was one of works. And therefore God was, the result if you didn't do it properly was that God would stop caring for you. But in the new, it's all about mercy and it's all about forgiveness of your sins, and that God will allow you to approach him always at all times. You have to understand, though, that in this new covenant, you don't approach me in the same way you did under the old. That's what he's trying to press in on them. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, those who have entered have ceased from their work. Yes, Carol. Well, you could, it is grace, but it's rest. It's both, yes. And rest and grace could actually be synonymously used. Yeah. So he's saying rest. He says, understand this, that those who have entered, those who have entered, you can almost put an exclamation point on that word have. Those who have entered God's rest, 
I got to get a different marker. That one's not working very good. Ooh, nice. Okay, have rested from their work. Right? I always, I always wonder about people who in, the, uh, in this New Testament era where, where they always want to go back to a works-based kind of a faith, where they want to, they feel that they have to perform and check the boxes in order to have relationship with God. They're totally missing the grace that we have in this new covenant, that it is not your work. It is what Christ did from before the foundation of the world planned, accomplished in reality in the day of the cross, but has an effect for us from now throughout all eternity, if we will rest in the work that he did, then we have the, this access to God. He, we, th and this is the maturity they needed to press into, and they weren't. And I would say even in our church today, there are many of us who still don't. We think that we have to be good enough. Now, this does not give us a license to sin. It doesn't mean write it all off and live any way you want. There are no, there are no um, boundaries for you as a Christian. That is not what it means. As a matter of fact, he said to us in, in um, Hebrews chapter 8 that in this new covenant, what was he going to do concerning his law? Write it on our hearts and put it into our minds, and then we would do what with it, according to Ezekiel 36? We would walk in it, right? We will, because he's going to give us his spirit, which will guide us to do that. Basically, we will have the I want to within us, rather than I have to, right? Free will versus God's sovereign. No. Well, I have a good question for you then to help address that. When God says, I will place this in your heart and put it on your mind and I will cause you to walk in my precepts because I will have given you my, my spirit, what happens to you when you don't? You are miserable. Because that same spirit who he gave to you so that you would have the ability to walk and do so in a way that uh, results in a righteous or holy living, if you don't and you truly belong to him, if you truly are his, what happens when you don't? You have a guilt that comes upon you. It's called conviction of the Holy Spirit. God brings conviction to turn you back. Now, I got to tell you that sometimes it takes a, a little while for some people to get that conviction. I get it. And I'm not, and I'm not going to be so legalistic. We all grow in our faith at different levels and at different places. But I can tell you this, particularly more mature believers, these believers who he's saying, by this time you ought to be teaching and not in, have need of teaching, their Holy Spirit within them should have been so well exercised by the training up in the knowledge of the Word of God and understanding the reality of what they are now in versus what they were in before. They should have had a conviction that would bring them around to a, white, a right walking. So, 
Yes, he places and he will cause you. How does he cause you? By giving you conviction. And it's a whole other Bible study. But you have to take that then and go into another realm of thinking and say, okay, so how does he cause you? He causes you by. And there's a lot of things he uses. One of the things he'll say to us later is we are to exhort one another, right? Through, through the household of faith, we're to keep each other in check. We're to encourage one another. Sometimes that means to rebuke right? But sometimes it just means to help them see the reality of what they were going to do or are doing it as how it's wrong. I would think so, but I, I, I would think so too. Yeah. Yes. Well, there is going to be application to that, but it's not the only one. Yes. Right. And well, and if you want to be super duper legalistic about who he's talking to here, he's talking to Israel. So you can er erase the whole church. But that's why we went into the New Testament then to say, well, then how does this affect us? We're not Jews. We're Gentiles. How does that affect us? Right. So there is a quality of what's being said here. There are some very specific things that he is addressing to Israel alone because he is going to save all Israel in that day. According to Romans chapter 11, he explains that, right? Can you see the, the multitudes of lessons you have to have kind of under your belt in, when you start getting involved in this? Do not, do not, though, take out this and say it has no application to the church. It does. We are grafted in, according to Romans 11. And according to what we looked at in uh, Ephesians, and what else? We looked at Romans. We looked at, hold on, let's look at all of these. We looked at uh, Romans 1.16, and in Romans 1.16, we see uh, that the gospel, which this is what we're discussing here, this gospel that came through the Son now, it's a gospel which leads to salvation. It's so great a salvation, and it's one that we should press into the knowledge of it. He's saying about that in Romans 1.16, what? First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's exactly right. And it is the power of God unto salvation for both. So there, it, it does apply to us, Daryl. But yes, there is also a specific fulfillment that's going to, qualities to it that apply only to Israel as the nation itself. And when you study Ezekiel and when you study Jeremiah, when you study all these. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's right. Yes. And you know, this. Yes. Yes. In part, yes. But it, it actually has a dual message. Because when you apply the information from Romans, from uh, Ephesians, from Colossians, from all the other places, we see that 
the new covenant is not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. But the promises that were made to Abraham and his descendants after are going to be fulfilled exactly as God promised according. Let's go there. Let's go look at Romans chapter 11 real quick because that one really clearly helps us see that, that it applies to both, but it also does still have a specific application. It is a process, and in the scripture also in Romans 12, I think it, is, it says, and how is your mind renewed? Right. It's by the renewing of your mind through the word of God, right. and that's a little by little process. This is what Hebrews just said. Right. Hebrews back in chapter 5, he rebuked them because they had not been pressing into the knowledge of God. And the word, they, he called it the word of righteousness in that passage, right? And he rebukes them for not training up their minds and being renewed. Right? So it, in, there's two qualities of renewing. Justification, so once for all act, happens at the moment of your salvation. Done. You are in the eyes of God now here. Merciful and your sins remembered no more. But then there's the secondary quality of that, and that is or sanctification, which is an ongoing process in our life. Yeah. Okay, so back, go back to Romans. What was the picture in Romans 11 about? Does somebody tell me what they see there? Okay. Okay. It starts out with a tree, and there's, the tree is who? Is, is well the the root and the systems are Christ and the Word of God and those truths right, but the tree and the branches represent Israel, Israel, the Jews, and some of the branches get broken off. Why do they get broken off? Unbelief, and then there are some wild olive branches which get grafted into that same tree which root and, and, and foundation is God and his word and his promises and his covenants, right, to Israel. Some, somebody gets grafted in. Who gets grafted in? The Gentiles. And in that he's saying when we get grafted in, how do we get grafted in? Part, by what? By faith, by belief. So they are broken off for unbelief. We are grafted in for belief. And then he goes on to say, but don't become arrogant about that, right? Because you do not support them, but rather what? Their, their promises to them are what support you. You are being grafted into those promises which started with Abraham, the promises to Abraham of a land, a seed, and a nation. You are going to be grafted into that. And you're grafted in by your faith. And those that have been broken off can be grafted in again. Yes. And he says, and how does that happen? By faith. By, faith. by faith. If you go to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13, you see that in the end time, when these things start to unfold in the, those days of tribulation, God is going to, to purge Israel and refine them and purify some of them. And in the end, who are left? There's a remnant. Two-thirds are going to die in that day. One-third will come through. One-third are going to be those who, according to what we're seeing here in, in Romans 11, are going to be grafted back in. They're going to come into faith. And when, what is God going to do with, with those who, co who come to faith in that day? 
What happens to them in the days of going into the kingdom on the land? What happens with them? They go on to the land. Ezekiel chapters 36, 37, 38, all the way down to 40, that talks about that kingdom days when Jesus comes back and he parcels out the land. He gives certain people of the, of the different tribes. They get their own sections uh, and their own, their own works are reestablished that God sets up. It's all going to be fulfilled. So although God has made promises in this passage that we're looking at here, which is a quote from Jeremiah, he's making a, a promise to Israel. And certainly the fact that this one is quoted to this audience who are Jews, it has a real specific application to them as a people. But what Kay did with us was she took us to the New Covenant, and she says, but who, in the New Covenant, who else gets to participate in that? Well, in Romans 1.16, Jews and Gentiles both. Whoever believes, right? And in Romans 11, um, it's, it says that um, Gentiles have been grafted in. I'm going to put 11.17. Somebody read that verse. Okay, so in that verse, it's telling us that the Gentiles are grafted into that tree, okay? Then it says in verse 20 that we have been grafted in how? By faith. And those who have been broken off at this time in history are broken off because of unbelief. So it's, again, we're back to the basic principles of salvation. So we have in Romans 11, verse 20... We have been grafted in by faith. Same way that Abraham was brought into faith. By believing God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In that covenant, which is also a covenant of grace and salvation. In the new covenant, the fulfillment of parts of those have taken place at this point. The rest of them are yet to come, but they will be fulfilled. Finish it. Look at what it says in verse um, 29. What does it say there? Why is it going to happen? Somebody read it really loud. I want to hear it. 29, uh uh-huh. Wow. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And therefore, he says now in verse 32, that he has shut up all in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all. In other words, he's fair. He's fair to Jew and Gentile. He's fair to all man. Anyone who sins dies in their sin. Anyone who refuses to repent dies in their sin. But if you will come to him by faith, believing him, he will remember your sins no more. He will be merciful. And in this new covenant, he no longer holds your feet to the fire. And if you mess up, he does not care for you anymore. In this covenant, he will always be merciful. He will always forgive you. He's given you his abiding spirit. And that spirit will guide you to follow him and he will will always care for you he will never leave you that's why we absolutely know chapter 6 is not talking about losing salvation all right so he follows it i want to go there real quick now he says um 
concerning Jesus' priesthood, I have much to say. He said that back in chapter 5, 11. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers by now. You have need for someone to teach you again, but you've remained infants. So he's rebuking them about their infancy. Then he opens in 6.1 and he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So that's what we're talking about here, pressing into the maturity. First thing is, understand, those who have entered God's rest have rested from their work. That's what this audience needed to hear. And he also says... Um, the other one. Oh, understand that in this new covenant, God does not hold sins against you is where we're at now in chapter 8. Uh, understand in this new covenant, God does not hold um, sins against you. Do you think they needed to hear that? Do you think maybe that they had been somehow getting swept back into that? In this, in this new covenant, he's going to get there, and we're not there yet. But in chapter 10, he's going to tell us Jesus is a better way to approach God. Is a better way to approach God. So don't drift back to that old thing. Don't drift away. Go to chapter 10, verses 18 to 23. I want to read somebody to read that also. Okay, so he's saying, he says, because Jesus has made this sacrifice once for all, you do not go back to the old system of, of trying to sacrifice every single time you mess up. This new covenant is not like the old one. That's what he's telling them. That's what the explanation is here to them in chapters 5. and 5, he's rebuking them for not realizing this. And in 6, he says, it's impossible to renew you again. It's not like the old system. This old system does not, let me just finish, let me read this flow of thought here that I've kind of developed on my chart here. Um, this is something I just did for myself because I thought it helped me. Leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and let us press on to maturity. Those who have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to the, themselves the Son of God and have put him to open shame. The, the key word in there, it's impossible to do that. You can't re-crucify. It's not like the old system. You don't go back to the temple time after time with these animals and, and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice for sin. In this new covenant, the sins are remembered no more. It's totally a different kind of covenant, you guys. That's what he's impressing on them. Because the new covenant is not like the old covenant of law, the, the, they, it's impossible to crucify the Lord over and over. The works of the Levitical priesthood cannot be carried forward into the priesthood of Christ. And so he's trying to press them. 
consider Jesus the high priest of your confession, press into the maturity of that knowledge. It's not like the old, it's better. Then he goes on, he says, for, he follows it, remember, immediately after those verses where he, he talks about the ground that gets burned, which is discipline, if they, if they produce thorns and thistles, there's going to be discipline, yes, but he does not not care for them. He forgives them. It's merciful. Discipline, but, but mercy. Always mercy. He says, for, we have an anchor of the soul, a hope, both sure and steadfast, one that enters within the veil. Jesus, who has become our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So then he brings back Melchizedek's subject again, and he begins to explain to them how Jesus qualifies for that. Last week we went through that, so I'm not going to go back there. But he, he goes on in chapter 7 then and says, because why, why is it you cannot crucify him over and over again? Why is it impossible to to keep going back to repentance. You're not supposed to do that. That's the old system. He says, because perfection did not come through the Levitical priesthood. He said that in 7.11. Then he says, God foreknew a priesthood would come through his son according to the order of Melchizedek. And he quotes a couple of verses in chapter 7, right? In verse 11 and 17. Then he says, when there is a change of priesthood, it is of necessity to have a change of law also. It's logical. It, it, that one would be an easy-peasy one for everybody to figure out. Even you and I can figure that one out, not even being Jewish, right? The law, however, made nothing perfect. That's his argument. That's why he said what he said in chapter 6, that it's impossible. The law never, never was the same as what we're... Don't try to take this new covenant, guys, and go back to the old and ram them together. And that's what these people apparently were in danger of doing. They were drifting. It doesn't say they ran away. It doesn't mean they totally abandoned God. It means it's like they were pulling God along with them as they went back into their other system, their old ways. We do that today when we carry God with us back into our old habits of our life into the sinful life that we, we had before coming into Christ. When we take him into, well, I'm going to go into things that are much more practical for you and I, gossip, cheating on taxes or cheating our neighbor, um, not being kind, not speaking words of, of kindness, but speaking things which tear people down, um, um, maybe even just bad attitudes about things. I mean, when we take God into that, that's the old way. But he's saying, look, in this new covenant, God's going to be merciful and he's going to re remember your sins no more. You don't have to go back to that old stuff, that old life, that old way. In the case of these believers, they were going back to their old law system. And that's why he started out where he said in 410, those who have entered God's rest have rested from their work. He's saying, don't go back to that temple work. The old law is done. So then he says, because he's entered within the veil, Jesus has become your high priest. He, he tells them how the Levitical priesthood and the old law is now going to be done away. He says in 722, God swore with an oath that his son would be a priest forever. So he's convincing them again that Jesus is the one that God promised to them would be their great high priest. And he qualifies because of all these things that he has explained to them. God's son is not like the Levitical priests. He is holy and exalted above the heavens. That's in 726. That's where we're coming from right now, this week's homework. 
And he's saying he lives forever, so he holds his priesthood permanently. Not like the old. It's better than the old, guys. All right? Because he's holy, he's undefiled. When he offered up himself as, as a sacrifice, it was done once for all time. So, here's my conclusion. Because they have already been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because it's not like the old covenant where the sons were only temporarily covered and sacrifices were made over and over with each new offense. They need to mature in their understanding of this new way to approach God. And they had not matured in it. They had not fully grasped it because they had not studied it. They had not remained faithful in the word of righteousness to, to mature in their concepts about who Jesus really is for them in this. It's not, verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, it's not like the law that caused God displeasure with his people when they failed to keep it. And then in verse 12, in the new covenant, God is merciful and he forgives sins forever. To me, that makes chapter 6 have a whole different message because we're, not, we're still not done with it. We're still not developing the totality of why he said what he said in verse 6. When he hits 10, he's going to hit on another note, another group of people. He's going to go back and revert back to those, the possibility of some not being in faith. And he's going to say about them how God is going to deal with them. And he's going to put the fire of God. It's going to be a fire and brimstone preaching right there in chapter 10. But he's going to bring it to their, to their attention that there is a seriousness for those who have not actually come into this faith. And with the consequences of what will happen for those who do not have this great merciful high priest who forgives sins forever. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it is. <laughs> do you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so in the new covenant, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So basically what you tell them is stop putting old wine in new wine. That's exactly, oh, that's very, very good. On an old, on an old, oh boy, you know what? That's a really, really good... Can you help me remember that? I want to write that down in, as a cross-reference because that really is very good. That is exactly what he is saying to them. He, I think what they, are they have been trying to do is because they had not matured, they were merging their old and their new together. And they were drifting, but they weren't walking away. They weren't losing their salvation. They weren't even abandoning their faith. What they were trying to do is merged the two together, and they still had the thinking of their old system in mind. They still felt that they needed to approach God through this old system because it was what's comfortable to them. And we can understand that. There's a lot of people who come into faith, and they have a hard time leaving their old faith system if it was a wrong one. And, and leaving that old faith system and coming into the new is hard. It's hard, hard to give those things up. Um, and I think that's what their issue is. Number one, it's hard to do it, but secondarily, it's really hard if you're not maturing yourself by not knowing what the, the real word of righteousness is all about. They did not understand how Jesus was this for them. And so they kept wanting to go back to the old, or they were being tempted to fall away back to the old. And in doing that, they would be crucifying the Lord and putting him to shame because the world would be watching as they did this. And then they're going to be saying, well, and you call yourself a Christian. 
there you are doing this and this and that. Don't, haven't some of us heard that before? You call yourself a Christian. I, I mean, I can tell you I've had that accusation thrown at me. Yes, you're a hypocrite and, and um, other things. So we can make an application of these points in our own life very easily. There's a specific application for this audience because of the time in history when they lived and the, the issue that they were battling against. But there is application for us in that we also can be guilty of not maturing in our faith so that we understand the fullness of the forgiveness that we have in Christ instead of living underneath this cloud that keeps following us around, making us feel defeated and not being powerful in the world in ministry, not being powerful in the way that we present who God is and what, what uh, Christ gives to us in this faith walk that we have. People don't want to have what we have when we walk around feeling like sin on a popsicle stick, right? Sin on a popsicle. Didn't you ever hear that? Yeah, a lollipop. <laughs> sin on a stick. And if, you, and if you feel like that's what you are, you feel defeated, you feel, you feel without victory. But you know what God says? He says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Don't rain on my parade. <laughs> Satan might be, but who's greater than he who is in you is he, right? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So he does. Right. And you know, with that, with that point in, in mind, Diane, I think that is why this particular book has remained to be such a struggle for people to understand interp interpretations on it. If Satan can keep you living under the bondage of the old thing, saying, if you don't keep the law well enough and if you mess up enough, then you're going to sin and, and there's no sacrifice that remains for you. You've lost it. That's it. You're gone. That's an, that, that losing a salvation is, is, a, is a victory for Satan. If you get convinced that that's what this passage is saying. And he says you're a slave. You become, well, that's it. With Satan, you are a slave. But what a difference it is if you come to the full knowledge of what we are pressing into right here, where it's not like the old. In the new, it's all about forgiveness, and he will never leave you. He will not not care for you. He will always care for you, even if you are messing up. Now, he will discipline, but he will not abandon you. It's not like the old system. So you do not be ever convinced that you can lose salvation. If you understand covenant at all, it is a once-for-all act. Once the shed is blood and, and, and the one has walked between the pieces of the flesh, you are, you are, it's done. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Can't be undone. You can't uneat that piece of cake at the wedding. Right. Two have become one. Isn't that awesome? It's a great visual, visualization. Lisa, did you have a, a, a... Oh, okay, I'm sorry. All right, good. Okay, so I think we did it. We did it early. And my brain is almost still working <laughs> with no food, <laughs> no sugar. <laughs> I might have to leave early, though, in order to go get my blood work so I can get food in me. <sighs> Thank you, guys. You did great.